Daniel 5, we saw a very brief picture into Belshazzar, and we'll examine him in the weeks to come in greater detail. But here is a picture of a man that knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew all about the pride. He knew God had humbled him. He knew what had happened, and yet he didn't learn. And if we think that we don't run the same risk that Belshazzar ran of knowing the story and knowing the pride and, and being able to, to tell the Bible lesson to people, but yet still struggling with pride, if, if we don't think that we run that risk, then honestly, we're probably fooling ourselves. So how can we, how can we know that we have a handle on pride? It almost seems like a catch-22, right? To, to admit that I have a handle on pride or I have this in check seems prideful. And that would mean that I don't have a handle on my pride, right? Is, is there a way to honestly feel like we're doing okay? Is it, is it possible for us as Christians to give ourselves some sort of test and find out okay, I'm, I'm doing all right right now, I was struggling, or I'm, I'm not doing okay, I am struggling. Is there any way that we can evaluate in our own lives how are we doing with pride? And I think that the answer to that is yes, we can. Now certainly we will always struggle with pride. I don't think that any of us will completely rid it from our souls or rid it from our hearts. David Rhodes wrote a pride and he compared pride to a dandelion. He said pride is the dandelion of the soul. Its roots go deep and only a little left behind sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest of encouraging cracks and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. So can we, can we ever feel like the dandelion of our soul is under the surface and, and it's not sprouting up and that we have a handle on our pride? Can we, can we ask ourselves this question, is our spiritual cancer in remission, so to speak? And that's what I want us to examine today. I think that that's a fair question to ask, and I think that we can find answers to that, and we can give ourselves a litmus test or an acid test for this. And I want to answer this question today. How do I know if my pride's in remission? How do I know if I'm doing okay with this, okay? I get God's word. I get Nebuchadnezzar struggled. I get Belshazzar struggled. I get I don't need to struggle. I need to be humble. I don't need to be prideful. I get it. But how can I know if I'm doing okay? How can I know if I truly have a handle on pride or if it's in remission? So I want to give you three ways today that we could possibly, in Daniel chapter 4, in Nebuchadnezzar's life, look and say, okay, our pride is not cured, so to speak, but it's in remission, our pride is we're doing all right and that we aren't struggling as maybe we were previously. How do we know if the disease of me has been cured? First, I want us to see this in Daniel chapter 4. I want us to see that Nebuchadnezzar, when his pride was in remission, he was humble in his word. Nebuchadnezzar was humble in his word. Look at verse number 30 of Daniel chapter 4. I want to start with Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He says in verse number 30, this is when God abased him. This is when God humbled him. Verse number 30, the king spake and said, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? So that's Nebuchadnezzar 1.0. That's the original king, the prideful man. And then if you would actually go to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 3, we didn't cover these last week and you may not even realize this entire passage of Scripture, Daniel chapter 4, is from the pen of Nebuchadnezzar. 
It is a personal testimony from him to his subjects in his kingdom saying, here's what God did in my life. And let's read the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4, and we'll see a polar opposite of the original Nebuchadnezzar. Verse number 1 of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, who, by the way, he was ruling, and he says these words, peace be multiplied unto you. Now that in and of itself is a statement. Here's the guy who's conquering everybody, killing people, pillaging villages. Here's the guy who is, you know, an axe murderer, so to speak. He has no problem with death. This, this man now says, I want to give peace unto everybody. So that's a change in tune for sure. Verse number two. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. You can see in these verses, post-pride, post-judgment, post-Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God, this is a completely different tune. This man is no longer about me and what I'm doing and that I'm master of the universe and I'm the ruler and my, my might and my power and my strength and my majesty. Now, all of a sudden, to all the subjects of the kingdom, it's God's power and God's might and his everlasting kingdom and his dominion and he rules and he's above all and in all and through all. That's Nebuchadnezzar's tune now. His actual words that he's speaking, that he's writing, his conversations with people have changed from this self-glorification, from this pride, to now God is worthy and God deserves my praise and God deserves what, what I should be giving to him all along. He, he deserves the honor and the glory and the majesty. One commentator said of Nebuchadnezzar in this particular passage of Scripture that he turned his throne into a pulpit and his state papers into sermons. And that's what he did. He said, God has so affected me and I have been so humbled and I recognize who he is to such a degree that I'm going to write to every nation under my power and I'm going to make sure that they all know who this God is. I'm going to brag him up. I'm going to talk him up. I'm going to talk about how good he is and naturally how bad I am. And we'll see that he continues through Daniel chapter 4 talking about I was humbled and this is what God did to me and, and God's worthy of my praise now. But Nebuchadnezzar's actual words as pride changes in his heart to humility, he becomes humble in word and he begins to point people to God in our lives would be to Christ, to Jesus. He begins to point people to him rather than to himself. And the same is true for us, that when our pride is in check, and this is a great acid test, this, when our pride's in check, we will be humble in word, and it won't be about us, it won't be about what people can do for us, it won't be about how good I am, or how great I am, or what I've deserved, or what I've earned, it will, it will then be about God, and what God's done in my life, and what God has worked in my heart, and what God is doing, and, and this, is, this is why, pride, is why we struggle to share our faith so many times. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why is it that when I go to share the gospel with that person, I just, I want to clam up? I, I have, I'll talk, about, I'll talk about sports, and we'll talk about politics, and we'll talk about the weather, and we'll talk about this, but I know I should share the gospel, and I go to talk about Jesus with, with someone, and all of a sudden, I have this weird feeling inside of me. Why is it that I go to I, I know I should give the track to that person at the drive through window, or I should invite my neighbor to church. Many, probably under the sound of my voice, you've known for weeks, months, years, possibly even decades, I should just simply invite my neighbor to church. 
Why don't we? Pride. What will they think of me? Oh, there's, what will they say of me? The religious zealot at the end of the street. What will they tell the other neighbors? I don't want to be known as, as the Jesus guy at work. But that's, that's why we struggle to share the gospel. There's, there is no other answer that I can come up with other than that it's our own pride. We care about how we'll look. We'll care about our appearance. We'll, we care about what people are going to say or what they're going to think more than we care about giving them the good news of Jesus Christ. And our pride clamps down our verbiage and it zips our lips and it makes us to where we struggle to share God with people. And when Nebuchadnezzar is abased and when Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, he no longer has that problem. He says, I'm going to let everybody know, like everyone, the whole world, my kingdom, I'm going to let them know God is awesome. Here's what he is, and he has the kingdom, and he has the power, and this is his dominion. This isn't about me. This isn't about what I've done. This is about God. And suddenly he changes it. And, and a good test for us is, do I struggle to share God with people? Do I struggle to share Jesus with people? Is there this resistance in my heart? Is, and if so, is that rooted in my pride? Is that rooted in what, I, what they'll think of me or what they'll say of me or what they'll tell somebody else? Last week, I wouldn't say this if he was here, and I don't think he's here today, but uh, last week I had one of my former co-workers who uh, worked at Verizon with me uh, in the audience. He sat right down here with his, with his grandmother last week. And uh, I've invited him to church I don't know how many times I've invited him to church, like a million. But, uh, but we had lunch about a week and a half ago, and I said, you should come. Just come to church, you know, one time. I said, I'm going to do it. So he came with his grandmother last week. And uh, I don't say this to be braggadocious at all. Lord knows my heart. I don't. But my wife came up, and, and we were saying, hey, after, after church. And uh, she asked me, she said, Gary, how was, uh, how was Mark's sermon? Was that different for you to see him rather than just talking in the break room or having lunch or something like that to see him up here preaching? How was, how was his sermon? And his, these were Gary's words, and I was glad that he settled. He said, it was like lunchtime. <laughs> he said, it was, it, was, it was like lunchtime. And that's the truth. That at work, it wasn't always easy, but I found that if I could early on just once, two, three times bring up God or bring up the Bible, things like that, it got progressively easy to just naturally talk about morals and where those, came, where those come from. And that has to be a God and, and Jesus and the gospel and church and those sorts of things. And I'm glad that Gary was able to say, you know what? We talked about this stuff all the time. We just, that was just part of our natural conversation. Eating a French fry from Wendy's was just talking about Jesus and the Bible for a little bit. And that should be the case in our lives. Those that know us, those that are closest to us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our kids or grandkids, whatever it may be, they, there should be a natural conversation. There should be a humility and word that's not about me. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about what he's done in my life. And Nebuchadnezzar has that. He's no longer the sovereign. He's no longer the ruler. God's sovereign. God's the ruler. And he admits that to the entire kingdom. Secondly, I would say this. If our pride is in remission will be humble in heart. Look at the end of Daniel chapter 4. We're just going to examine the bookends here, the beginning and the end. Look at verse number uh, 34 of Daniel 4. And we'll see the true heart of humility in Nebuchadnezzar. He says in verse 34, at the end of days, at the end of his punishment, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, 
my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. So we see the words again, verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. All of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar has a deflated view of himself and an inflated view of God. That who am I now? What, what might do I have? What power do I have? He now sees all the inhabitants of the earth, including himself, there as nothing in light of God. Then he goes on to say this. And he, God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? How many times in our life have we asked God that question? God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand. What, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in my health? What are you doing in my finances right now? What are you doing with, with my, fa- my extended family? What, what are you doing? God, Nebuchadnezzar says that my humility and my lack of pride suddenly makes it to where I recognize who I really am and who God really is. And who am I to question God? Who am I? I'm reputed as nothing. And who can say to God, what are you doing? No one, it's a rhetorical question. No one can say to God that. No one can ask him that question. No one can, can now question God and, and raise your fist to heaven of who are you to do this to me? Suddenly in Nebuchadnezzar's humility, he recognizes that God is sovereign over him. In my studies over the past two or three weeks, I came across two men. Both men were aides to President Nixon and aided in Watergate, and both men went to, went to prison. One was Charles Colson. He was a close political aide, I guess is what we would officially call him, but he was basically Nixon's hatchet man. He did all the dirty work for Nixon, and uh, he's been very open about it. The man's now a Christian. He's been very open about some of the things he did. And there's, there's a long laundry list of what Colson has done that we would find completely and totally just egregious. And one, I'll give you a couple of them. One time he armed 200 union workers with steel bars to attack student protesters which, not very nice of the man, he proposed, so there were some politically damning documents in a building called the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in D.C., and he proposed that they bomb the building so that in the chaos they could get the, get the documents out of the building. So that's the type of man this, this guy is for President Nixon, and he gets convicted of his part in Watergate, goes to prison. Someone gives him mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He reads it, converts to Christianity, and you probably have heard of him in one way or another. He was a, a big uh, evangelist, honestly, for a lot of years. He died just a few years ago. Uh, he had the radio show Breaking Point. If you ever heard that over the radio waves, it talked about modern kind of current events and light of the Bible. But they became a Christian. But there was another man who was convicted with him, one of his fellow conspirators, George Gordon Liddy. He was a lawyer, and he was conv- uh, convinced or convicted of conspiracy, burglary, and illegal wiretapping. And after Liddy was released from prison, this is what he said. He said this, I have found within myself all I need and all I ever shall need. I'm a man of great faith, but my faith is in George Gordon Liddy. I have never failed me. You see the contrast? Two men who were arrogant, prideful, godless men. One takes the lesson and takes the humility, turns to Christ and points people to him. Has a true heart of humility. One does not learn, hardens his neck, 
and comes out of prison and says, I'm a man of faith, but my faith's in me. I have everything that I've ever needed. I have great faith in myself. And what a contrast. And that, honestly, Nebuchadnezzar is both those men just at different points in time. He is, he is George Gordon Liddy at the beginning of Daniel 4 when he is in his pride. He's unwilling to humble himself. But by the end of the chapter, and now he's writing to people and saying, I'm, I'm not Liddy any longer. I'm Colston. God has humbled me. I have a heart. It's all about him now. It's, it's all about God. It's no longer about me and about what I've done. Third and lastly and probably most importantly, when our pride is in remission, we will be humble indeed. I want you to look in verse number 27. Indeed, two separate words. Look at verse 27. This, a number of weeks ago, I read, and it just struck me out of the left field, verse number 27. And frankly, I have not been able to shake it. I, um, to give you behind-the-scenes look at, uh, at Mark and, and sermon prep, normally if I can have six pages of content, that'll be about a 45 to 50-minute sermon for me. I had 12 pages of content on this one point, so <laughs> I'm not going to give them all to you. I eliminated a lot, but it has, it has just so struck me and just kind of captured my heart and mind of recent that, uh, that I've just looked at this one phrase in verse number 27. This is Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells King Nebuchadnezzar, God does not have to humble you. You can do this yourself. There's a remedy. You don't have to have this happen to you. And this is what he says in verse 27. He says, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness. And then I think he's going to list a, a, a profound way that he can do exactly this. And thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be the lengthening of thy tranquility. Daniel says, Break off your sins. And here's specifically how you should do this, King Nebuchadnezzar. Show mercy to the poor. And that, that statement so struck me. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the ruler of the world at this time, ruling Babylon. And we look at Babylon now, one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. And we look at the city and the, the hanging gardens and the walls that are 40 feet high and 80 feet wide and the Issachar Gate and the, and the river Euphrates that flew through there or, or went through the middle of the city. We look at the, the temples and the buildings and the, all the statues that were to the deities of gold. And, and Babylon was a profound city, possibly the greatest city in all of world history. And we look at that, but Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar's pet project. Babylon was where he invested his time. He invested his money. He invested his resources. It was all about this statue and this building and this gate and this temple and, and this deity. It was, it was all about his his doing. Isaiah says in Isaiah 14 of Babylon, he refers to it as a golden city. He says that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how hath the oppressor, and don't forget that he is the oppressor, ceased and the golden city ceased. If there was ever a man who had the Midas touch that could touch something and turn it to gold, obviously he couldn't literally do that, but that's Nebuchadnezzar. He loved his city. He loved the gold. He loved to invest his resources in that. And Nebuchadnezzar is a man who has the power and the financial resources to help others, but he's entirely self-absorbed. This man has the ability and he has the resources to help the oppressed, to help the poor in his kingdom, 
But because he's so self-absorbed and wants to build everything for his glory and his greatness and look at me and look at this statue that I built and let's have this big day around this 90-foot tall golden statue in Daniel chapter 3. Because it's all about him and his glory, he refuses to help other people. And I would say this about Nebuchadnezzar. He practiced an indulgent lifestyle and he ignored the misfortunes of others. That his pride and his showing mercy to the poor and the lack thereof was rooted in an indulgent lifestyle and ignoring the plight of other people. And if we think that as Americans we're exempt from being Nebuchadnezzar-esque in that way, we're fooling ourselves. If there was ever a people that are primed to live indulgently and ignore the plight of other people, it's probably us, honestly. We have been blessed, and we thank God for that, and we are, we are appreciative of that. But at the same time, we can br- go to a point where we live as Nebuchadnezzar, completely indulgent and ignoring the misfortunes of others. And you, you'd say, well, no, no, that's, that's not me. You know, I, I give to my church. Occasionally I give to that person, you know, on the, on the road with the will work for food. I, I give to him. You know, that's not me. I'm not indulgent. I don't ignore the plight of others. I want to show you, and I, do, I don't show you this picture to play on your emotions today, but I, I, want, I want you to see it. I want to show you a picture entitled, entitled Suffering Girl. You may have seen this picture. Uh, this is from 1993 in Sudan. It was on the cover of Time magazine in 1993, taken by a man named Kevin Carter. Take a moment and look at that. Tell me that we don't ignore the misfortune of others. We don't want to look at that. We don't want to think it's that bad. We don't want to think people need our help that desperately. But truth be told, 1993 is not some anomaly of a year. That's every year in different places of the world. Right now, it's a bunch of refugees from Muslim countries and from Syria. And I know that's a, that's a hot topic politically right now. Of, well, we must keep our country safe and we don't want another 9-11. But as Christians, are we ignoring millions of people? who are hurting close to that bad? Who have nothing? Who have last month watched their relatives murdered before their eyes, fleeing their country without any hope? And I'm not even going to get into the politics of it. I'm I'm not for us being ignorant with people. But I am for helping people. Truth be told, if we were honest with ourselves, we have millions of Muslim people who are primed for the gospel because they've seen what the religion is doing to their country and their lives and their homeland if we would open our eyes for a moment and consider what's happening. And Nebuchadnezzar is a man who ignores the plight of other people and lives indulgently. I'm not saying you can never have, we're in a nice building today. I'm thankful for it. I'm not saying you can't have a car. I'm not saying you can't have a house. But next time you get that bonus at work, maybe ask yourself, do I really need to upgrade my TV from 80 inches to 86 inches? 
Do I really need different color curtains this year? Or is there possibly somebody like that who needs my help? And if I'm honest with myself, there's a lot of work to be done in my heart and showing mercy to the poor. And the sign that well, it's my money. I've earned it. This is what I want. I'm going to live this lifestyle. That's a sign of pride in Nebuchadnezzar's life and it's a sign of pride in our life. That Daniel gives him one deed. He said, humble yourself and do this one thing. Turn from your sins. Show mercy to the poor. And Nebuchadnezzar refuses. But we find at the beginning of the chapter that he's now writing to people say, I want peace for all of you. He has changed in his ways now at the end of it all, but he refused to change. And he refused to do it. And we, in our, in our pride as modern Americans, we, we think of our money as that, our money. That's the problem. We, it's mine. I've earned it. I've done it. I've, I've worked. I've gone to school. I've put in the effort. This is, this is what I deserve. I'm privileged, and I've done it. With what? How, how did you earn that money? With the health? With the mind? with the skill that God gave you. So no, I worked hard. What, so does the man in India this morning who's going to work all day long from sunup to sundown to get a bowl of rice to feed his family. You think he works less hard than we do? No. The world is filled with people that, that work hard. We have what we have because we're privileged, because God gave it to us, because God blessed us. And I believe God gave Nebuchadnezzar so much so that he could turn around and he could bless other people so that he could show mercy to the poor. He has, Nebuchadnezzar has the power and the resources to help people. And if we think that we in this room don't have the power and the resources to help people, we're kidding ourselves. We do. And, but we want to think of, of our money as our money. I, I get tickled at people who have a problem with God, you know, showing mercy to the poor, or tithing, or giving, or alms. I, I, that's funny to me. If, if you asked me today, if, if you came up and said, I'm, I'm in a tough place, I need $10,000, would you give it to me? I said, you know what, I keep $10,000 in my pocket all the time. Here you go, 10 grand. And you looked at me and said, well, how much interest do you want? How, when do you want me to pay it back to you by da 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 And I told you, you know what? Just give me $1,000 sometime in the, in, your, in the next lifetime. You know what? Just keep the nine. Give me 1000 back. Would you look at me and say, how dare he? He wants $1,000 back? How, how egregious. How? No, you'd say, what unbelievable grace that this guy is going to give me ten grand, but he's only going to want $1,000 back. He just wants 10% back. That's, that's biblical tithing. It's an understanding and it's a lack of pride that I didn't do this. Yeah, I may have put in some work. I may have put in some effort. I'm thankful for parents that taught me my work ethic. But truth be told, if I evaluate all of this in the grand scheme of things and why I have more and why I have the car and the house and the money and everything that I have, it's, it's maybe 2% me. If that, it's God. It's where he's placed me. It's what he's done in my life. And he's the one that has given me all this. He's the one that has put me in a position to have all this. And and. Truth be told, it's not unreasonable at all for God to ask for some of what is his back. And when it comes to giving to the poor, if I was to take my, my 12 pages of notes and boil them down into three statements, it's about a page and a half of notes, here are the three statements that I think that we should understand when it comes to our pride 
and humbling ourselves indeed and what it truly means to give to the poor. So here are the three statements. Number one, understand that we serve the God of the poor. We serve a God who relates and loves and cares about the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. Scripture is littered with passages all about those demographics of people who are underprivileged and need help from other people. Scripture is littered with that. The more that I've studied, the more this has become so profoundly clear to me that that God wants us to help those people, and that's at his heart. And that is completely contrary. When Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar to do this, or when you see this in the Old Testament to the Jews, or even to the, in the New Testament to us, this is contrary to the gods of the world, the man-made gods. The man-made gods were, if you do good, I reward you. A tit-for-tat, a good work system. So naturally, if you have more, if you've been blessed, if you have power, if you have authority, if you're a king, if you're a general, if you're a priest, then that's because you did right. That's because you pleased God and God blessed you. And if you don't have anything and if you're poor, then that's because you didn't do right and God didn't bless you. And God steps onto the scene or the page of Scripture and says, no, that's, that's not the way it is at all. I care, for, I care for everyone. I care for the poor. I care for the widow. I care for the orphan. I care for everybody. It's not about what you did. It's about what I did. It's about what I gave you. And we understand that we have a, a God that relates to the poor. This is why in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a story of Naaman, the captain of the Syrian army. And Naaman has leprosy. Right now, I'm teaching my son the, the condensed version of this story. Naaman has leprosy, and he has a little Jewish slave girl who tells him, there's a prophet named Elisha who can heal you in Judah if you will go to him. So what does Naaman do? Naaman doesn't go to, to Elisha. Naaman goes to the king of Judah with a letter from his king, some money and some clothes, and says, here's all this stuff. Tell Elisha to heal me. And the king of Judah rents his clothes and says, no. That's not how God works. You can't buy God off. I'm not in bed with God. You can't bribe him to, to heal you or get what you want. But that was, that's the gods of the ancient Near East. That's even the gods of a lot of the people that, that we would deal with right now, that I give to God or I help him or I, I do some form of bribery. That's why the Bible is so against bribery, because the poor person can't afford to bribe somebody. It's unfair. But that is, that is completely unique to, to Scripture. And that has, that has transferred, Judeo-Christian ethics have transferred into our culture, and we have all men are created equal written in, in, in the laws of our land. But if, if we think that that's common sense, if we think that that's just normal, that everybody thinks that way, we're, we're kidding ourselves. That, that is of God. Most of the cultures of history do not operate on an all men are created equal system. They operate on a caste system. If you're poor, you're, you're downcast, you're, you're trying down. And God says, no, I identify with that person. I love that person. I want you to help that person. That's why, not just in word, but even in our ultimate example, Jesus Christ identifies with the poor. Jesus is born where? In a manger. Not in, not in some palace somewhere. Jesus' parents go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to him. And do they have the money to offer the full sacrifice? No, they don't. They offer two turtle doves, the poor person's sacrifice. Jesus grew up in a poor 
carpenter's home. In the last week of his life, we find that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He has his last meal in a borrowed upper room. He is crucified where they cast lots for the one possession he does have, a robe. They cast lots for that one sole possession he has. Then he's buried in a borrowed tomb. Our God took on flesh, and he didn't take on flesh of a king or of a potentate. He said, I identify with the poor, and I know what it's like, and I can relate. And and we have a God that is the God of the poor, and we shouldn't forget that. Number two, we should walk through life open-handed. Deuteronomy 15, there's a lot of verses on this, but this is probably the best one I could give. Deuteronomy 15, the poor shall never cease to be out of the land. So what should we do, throw our hands up? Oh, man, never going to solve that problem. No. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. God says, you may not be able to ever solve the problem where there's never a poor person, but that doesn't change your responsibility to open your hand wide to give to people. This is why when Zacchaeus meets Jesus Christ and Zacchaeus is changed, he goes from a greedy, money-pinching little man to the man that restores fourfold to everyone who he had robbed. And Zacchaeus does what? He gives half of his goods to the poor. This is why the, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, Jesus, pat myself on the back. I've done everything. I've kept the commandments from my youth. I'm a good little boy. And Jesus says, okay, take your money Mr. Close-fisted, rich young ruler who's super religious, and give it to the poor. And what's, what's the rich young ruler do? He walks away sad. So I can't do it. I, I can't give it up. It's mine. I want it. It's, it's, I, I, can't, I, just, I, can't, I can't walk through life open-handed. I can't walk through life giving to other people. There was a poll done in the 1990s, and people were asked this question. Pick what you would do. They had a list of of different options. What would you do for $10 million? And the options included putting your child up for adoption, killing a stranger, leaving your spouse, giving up your citizenship, abandoning your church, abandoning your family, like crazy things. And 66, more than two-thirds, more than 66% of people said they would do one of them for $10 million. Of Of our country... And I don't think we've gotten less greedy or less prideful in the last 20 years. If we're not careful, we're a people who we get all we can, however we can, as much as we can, and we want to hold on to it. And we want, we want to keep it locked up in our savings account, in our 401k, in our wallet, in our check, but in our pocket. It's mine. And we don't want to walk through life open-handed as God told us to. Third and lastly, we should understand this. The greatest gift that we can give to any person, including the poor person, is the gospel of Jesus. The greatest gift that we can give to anybody, and this is not to say we don't give money, we don't give humanitarian aid, we don't give medical leave, that's not to say any of that, but the greatest gift that we can give to anyone, including the poor, is the gospel. That is a resource that's free to us. It costs God everything, and at the very least, we could give that to people. This is what Peter and John, when they're walking to the temple in Acts 3, and the lame man is laying there begging alms, begging for money because he's poor, and Peter and John walk by, and Peter says, silver and gold, have I none? Look, I don't got any money, buddy, but what I do have, I'll give you that. And, and he heals him and gives him Jesus. And, and there may be times in our life where we say, you know what, honestly, I, I, I want to be open-handed, but there's nothing in my hand right now, so I can't, but I can at least give you Jesus. This is what Matthew 11, 
John the Baptist sends his disciples to question, is Jesus really the Messiah? And Jesus says, go tell John this. And I think that this is super revealing. Verse number four of Matthew 11, Jesus answered and said to them, go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. So what do they hear and see? The blind receive their sight. That sounds good. A blind person gets their sight back. That sounds normal to me. The lame walk. Okay, that's what a lame man would need. They need to walk. Lepers are cleansed. That's what a leper would need. The deaf hear. Okay, that's what they need. The dead are raised up. Sounds like what they need. And the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Jesus said, I am poor. Jesus wasn't a money dispenser. He wasn't an ATM. But he helped people's hearts and he gave them the gospel. He had a robe to his name. That was it. That's all he had. He had no place to lay his head other than rooms that he borrowed. But he said, the poor, I give the gospel to them. This is what Isaiah prophesied of the Lord and said, uh, of the Lord, he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And we must understand, that doesn't excuse us away. That doesn't excuse away our indulgent lifestyles. That doesn't excuse away our ignorance and, and neglecting to look at pictures like that on the screen and really recognizing what's happening inside of our world. But we do understand that the gospel is the greatest gift we can give to people. That's what missions conference is going to be all about. Our missionaries are going to come in this week, and they, they will go to Africa. They will go to Spain. They will go to Nicaragua. They'll go all over the world. And will they administer humanitarian aid? Yeah. Will they, will they give medical help and set up a med- medical clinic? Sure. Will they give gifts to people or go to a, a dump, literally, where people live in the dump and give them candy or food or those sorts of things? Yes. But all of that is laced with the gospel. All of that is packaged alongside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we understand we, there's only so many resources that we have. There's only so much money we can have. And we want to do our best with that. We want to be open-handed with that. But we want to give the gospel as much as we can, as often as we can, to whoever we can, wherever we can. And that's what our missions conference is all about. It doesn't mean that we shirk our responsibility to share our wealth. It doesn't mean that we neglect our responsibility to show mercy to the poor or that we don't go on medical missions trips. But it does mean that as Christians, we understand our greatest gift that we can give to people, and Jesus understood that, was the gospel. That we need to give people Jesus Christ and introduce them to him. In conclusion, I want to read you something from Abraham Lincoln. In 1863, right in the middle of the Civil War, Lincoln declared a day of fasting, prayer, and humiliation. Think of one of our presidents did that now. We're going to declare a day of humiliation. But Lincoln did. And this is what Lincoln said, which I think is a a great picture of of our hearts and that we should be mindful of our pride. Is, Is our pride in check? Is it in remission? Here's what Lincoln said. We, as Americans, have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But... We have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to fill the necessity of the redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. I don't know that we've come too far in 150 years. I don't know we've gotten much better at humility despite Lincoln's best attempt there. I dare say that our nation has probably become 
even more so intoxicated with our success. We become even more proud. And we learn here in Daniel chapter 4, is, is there a remedy for our pride? Is there a way that we can ask ourselves, how am I doing with pride? I think there is. Are we humble in our word? Are we ashamed to share the gospel? Or can we just share it openly? Because we understand who God is and who we are. Are we humble in our heart? The heart of God, everything you do is right. Who am I? But everything you do is right. And are we humble in our deeds? Specifically, what Daniel mentioned to Nebuchadnezzar, which I think ties in beautifully with our missions conference this week, is show mercy to the poor. The gospel, first and foremost, yes, but that doesn't excuse us away from a financial obligation. That doesn't excuse us away from opening our hand wide. And we see that in Nebuchadnezzar's life, when pride was in remission, he was humble in those three ways, in word, in heart, in deed. And I don't know about you, I have work to do. The dandelion of my soul is probably large and in charge. It's, it's all over the place. I, I have some work to do to get pride in check in my own life and to ask myself, am I truly humble in my word, in my heart, in my deed?